You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today, we have Felix Wurzman, real estate investor with more than 12 years in investment and multifamily business in Ontario. Please help me to welcome our guest today. How are you, Felix? I'm doing very well, Adam, yourself. Thanks so much for being with us today. And before we get deep on, on multifamily and commercial real estate, I would like to ask you about what was the beginning for you uh, on commercial real estate and why commercial real estate? Well, uh, after investing in real estate actively uh, for uh, several years, um, I felt that, you know, I, I employed several strategies across the board, student rentals, rental and single family homes, conversions and the like. And eventually you, uh, you know, you pivot from one strategy to the next as they become more, um, you know, I would say what some strategies work better sometimes, but not all the times, mm. right? So for example, the market that I'm currently operating in single family home buying, you mm. can no longer cash flow on these things. So I had to pivot over time and eventually you reach a certain uh, level of wealth mm. uh, and expertise where you basically want to keep on scaling up, right? Pivot higher. Um, and eventually I basically came across, you know, uh, the private equity syndicated deals, both on the development side and the multifamily side. Mm. Um, there's a reason why we do what we do as investors, and it's not to create a ton of more work for ourselves. We do want to basically create a nice nest egg. Mm. We want to make sure that, um, but, but the main reason why we do it is to win back our time so we can do what we want to do. So typically, I mean, you're not going to want to create more work for yourself, even although you can certainly do so. And I found that the, private syndicated, uh, private equity syndicated models uh, really basically appealed to me from that perspective, because, you know, if I wanted to be active on these type of deals, I could be active. If I want to be passive on these deals, I could be passive. So I can pick and choose how much work I basically employ into these type of opportunities. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I decide to be in the, in the passenger seat as a limited partner, for example, to mm -hmm. be a purely passive investor. Mm -hmm. And at other times, you know, if I want to basically level up my skills, and uh, be more active in deals, I'll, I'll participate in them as a co-general partner or or, or uh, both, you know? Oh, okay. So you, you've been, as you mentioned, you've been on the driver's seat or the the back seat. So for, for now, as you see, there's a shift on the market, especially from the passive investing perspective, especially on the criteria and selecting uh, operators. Uh, what is the, like the upside for you right now when you're choosing an operator when you are in the backseat basically or the passive investor? What you're looking for when you're choosing your operator or your deal? For sure. So very important. And this applies to even, you know, small investor joint venture deals. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of similarities involved. Number one, you're looking at track record, right? Have, have the operators been in business and have done these type of deals time and time again and take a look at basically what they projected, the results that they were projecting versus uh, the, the, the actual results. Um, you're looking at, uh, and this is at the nitty gritty level, right? Uh, you're also looking to make sure that they have good teams in place mm -hmm. that can execute on the results. Um, on the top level view, like on the 10,000th uh, floor view, you're, when you're, you're looking at things like location, you're looking at increasing population flows, you're looking at good paying jobs, you're looking at 
um, highly diversified economies, economic bases within those municipalities. Mm. So all of that plays into the equation. And finally, you, you're looking at, the, you know, on the micro level, the neighborhood levels, uh, you're looking at the dynamics at play there. Uh, you're looking at, um, you know, the percentage of uh, what what jobs the tenants are, are working in, for example. You don't want any one industry to be uh, making up the vast majority of the employment opportunities in those uh, in those areas because if that company goes belly up, so does your investment in a lot of cases. Mm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so you're, there's a lot of things to take into consideration. And then it comes down to a deal-by-deal deal basis, right? You're not... What I've found is every single deal is structured very differently and underwritten very differently, right? I tend to be, you know, people look at me as a real estate investor and they think that I'm a very high risk individual. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. I'm actually a pretty risk averse individual. Hmm. So, you know, I have a set of criteria that I like to follow. I, I assess every single deal, right? Um, cash flow is king. So uh, first and foremost, that opportunity needs to pump out cash flow. Either, either immediately from day one or shortly thereafter, right? Uh, I'm looking at, uh, you know, the demographics. I'm looking at the occupancy rates. I'm looking at, you know, the condition of the properties. What does it take to basically renovate them? You know, do a smell test to make sure that this makes sense. You know, that, you know, the budgets that um, my general partners are basically providing to me are reasonable. And I could do so because I've done several projects myself at smaller scales maybe, but I know approximately what the construction costs are. So I, I can usually do, you know, um, a, a very simple analysis to see if this makes kind of sense or whether the general partners are totally out to lunch. So um, as a passive investor, as you mentioned, this is basically the market fundamentals and uh, the, the team experience. But when you're investing and you're trying to diversify between your uh, investments, what is appealing for you more between REITs? funds and syndication which is a regular deal by deal basis why you're uh going was always a syndication model more than the rates and okay. the fund model excellent question and uh, i think most people are familiar with reits mm. especially publicly traded reits mm. um let's let's define it very briefly and to a lesser extent the fund structure is technically a private reit right it, right. it might be smaller right and then you have the GPLP structure. Now, the, there's pros and cons to each one of these strategies. The, the reason why I like the GPLP structure in the syndicated model is because it offers you the highest return possible out of, out of all of them, mm -hmm. uh, because you're running very lean. If you're dealing with REITs, you need to a CEO, a CFO, all the admin staff, uh, regulatory uh, reporting. So basically a lot of the uh, profits and cash flow that you're generating from these real estate portfolio is being sucked out uh, by, by these individuals or these processes, right? Correct. To a lesser extent, I mean, the same thing applies in the fund structure, in the private fund structure or private REIT sector. You still have to have that overhead involved, right? Um, the management fee. The other, what's that? The management fee. Like There's a management fees and yeah. everything else as well, yeah. right? And and again, not all of them are created equal. I mean, if people are interested in investing in REITs or, or even fund structures, you have to get do your due diligence because each one mm. of these deals is structured very differently. Yeah. Um, on, on the GPLP structure, I mean, the other thing is when you're investing in REITs and fund structures, you're investing in the good and potentially all the bad and the ugly within that fund. Correct. So it Correct. usually consists of like several properties in there. Some of them might be, you know, um, 
know, superstars, other ones might be underperforming, but when you're investing in it, you're investing in the whole basket. You, you don't get to pick and choose. Um, I kind of like the GPLP structure because number one, it's, it's, uh, it's very lean in operations, mm. the people who are managing the deal, the general partners, um, and also your ability to pick and choose which properties you want to participate in. So if something smells bad and you don't like that specific investment, move on to the next one. You don't have to basically invest in that property. Um, so you could pick and choose and thereby de-risk uh, or mitigate your risks of uh, investment risk and maximize your cash flow. The other benefit of investing in the GPLP structure is if especially if they're structured properly. And again, I cannot mm -hmm. underscore this enough. You have to do your proper due diligence because not all of them are created equal mm -hmm. is you want to basically invest in, in GPLP structures where number one, your GPs are also, also have some skin in the game, preferably considerable ones. I've seen a lot of deals where the GPs put zero money down of their own. Um, to me, right, right off the bat, that basically sets up red flags. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know, I think unlikely if you're going to find something like this, is a, there's no skin in the game, you're not going to invest because it shows that there's no actual confidence on the, on the deal itself. Correct. And, and, and a lot of these people are, have never done a deal like this, like a multifamily deal. They're newbies, essentially, and they're trying to source other people's money, but without having that track record, which is, hmm. to me, is insane if you want to invest with those types of individuals, right? It makes no sense hmm. whatsoever. Um, but the GPLP structure works really well, especially if you, after your due diligence, you recognize that the, um, uh, the uh, um, how should I put it? The motivation of the general partners are fully mm. aligned with the success of the limited partners, the passive yes. investors. Yes. And what I mean by that is, you know, they general partners typically don't make very little of fundraising necessarily, right? But as far as the execution, that's basically the vast majority of where they can make their money. Correct. And, but they can only make that money if they execute and deliver on the results that they promised to the limited partners. And the better that the limited partners do, the better that the general partners do. So their interests are 100% aligned in the best case scenario. That's essentially yeah. where you want to be. I've seen a lot of deals where that's not the case. You know, I've seen both the fund structure, REITs, or, or even GPLP deals um, where, you know, again, money is being siphoned off by the general partners, right? Every time they do, I'll give you an example. Let's say they do a refi on the property after they reposition it, right? Which is the regular be, time frame between four to six years? Correct. Or 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 a sale of the property. Yes. Uh, some of these guys might take 10, 20% off of the overall value of that capital transaction. And I know some some private REITs that do that, right? Mm. And but they don't have, but they don't disclose it very well. <laughs> so they might offer like an eight percent yield as an example, but you know, the, the actual return is much higher. But the reason why it's so low is because they're they're taking a big chunk of the profits for themselves. Right? At the end, as you mentioned, because uh, one of the things on multifamily usually is uh, upfront fee, which is acquisition fee is not too much. But when you're doing a refinance or actual um, exiting the deal, this is where the, the money comes from. And you're mentioning, you're referring to the split between the GPLP, whereas usual split is 30 to 70 or 20 to 80. Correct. And uh, it, it could be higher, lower, depending on the yeah. nature, uh, how much work is required. Like if a property needs major, major renovations and will require a ton of time of the general partners, yeah. that split, you know, that, that's actually an important point as well. There's reasons why some splits are more robust than others. 
Yes. Um, but then again, basically the split is lower. Typically the profits, expected profits are, are higher as well. Yeah. Right. And it, it's given the amount of work that the general partners need to put into the deal. Right. If they need to reposition every single unit of their deal with, reno, uh, you know, um, evictions, um, major renovations all across the board, and they, they'll need two, three years of full-time work without getting almost paid at all. Uh, clearly, I mean, you want to make sure that your general partners are getting some sort of benefit. Otherwise, what's the point for them to do it, right? Um, and this is basically the, the different split or waterfalls when you're splitting the deal between the GP and LP. You have different hurdles and, and waterfalls between a GP and LP. Correct. And and people sometimes structure, like I said, these are very, uh, every deal is structured very differently depending on which organization you deal with, depending on which general partners you deal with. So I cannot underscore this enough. You have to do very good and proper due diligence and ask those relevant questions of the uh, of the general partners to see exactly how these deals are structured. The other thing is, I mean, they can play around with numbers. You know, I like to be, I only like to deal with deals that tend to be very conservative in nature as far as the render writing is concerned, right? Hmm. Uh, sometimes the more liberal general partners like to embed like appreciation rates as part of the overall return. Or they'll basically uh, create some, you know, let's say rental rates over the last year went up by 15%. So they're assuming that they're going to go up by 15% for the next five, six years, which is unreasonable as well. Yes. Right. So, uh, or cap rates, they're, they're thinking the cap rates are going to compress even further. Right. So these are very li liberties that some general partners take that don't make any sense because the reality is nobody knows what the future holds in the next 12 months, let alone five, six years. So, I prefer to deal on the more conservative basis with deals that are written uh, underwritten more conservatively. So deals that we are, we're actually, you know, like in the current deal that we, we just closed on, we're actually um, embedding uh, or assuming that the cap rates are actually going to rise. Yes. And when, when the cap rates rise, actually the real estate values actually go down. Yeah. Right. Um, the rental rates that uh, we've experienced year over year, just before buying the property was about 12.3%. We are only tracking three to four percent uh, rental rate appreciation in the next on an annual basis, right? So th that's overly conservative, and as a result, I mean, our deal might not look as as attractive as some of the other players out there, mm. but we are very comfortable that we can deliver on these results, right? I, I think the uh, lesson here is when you're investing, in, especially on the passive side, you need to, especially on the syndication part and commercial real estate, you have to have some minimum. Uh, information about how you evaluate as uh, the actual deal, including the technical part, which is we're talking about underwriting, about market fundamentals. And this is basically what you did on the last 10, 12 years. You started to understand actually how to be conservative. You're just not uh, follow the flow as going with one of the syndicators or the operator just with the name or the track of record, but also you are analyzing the actual performance and the deals uh, based on the actual fundamental on this deal, which I like about what you're saying, because you're not just asking about who's the highest return on the market. No, you're actually doing your due diligence and due diligence here are not only on the legal side, but also on the financial and the economical side which this is basically what we name it as a professional passive investor. Correct. And then the other important thing, obviously, is you want to make sure you're dealing in deals that have plan A's, B's, and C's hmm. with respect to either the exit of strategy or ensuring maximizing of cash flow. Hmm. 
right? So, you know, some of these deals are structured by, you know, we need to sell within three years. Well, what happens if the market conditions are not warranted, for example, right? What if uh, the rental rates have not increased as high as you wanted them to be, right? Mm -hmm. You have to take a lot of this stuff into consideration. What I find some of the deals that, you know, come across my desk, um, some of the general partners don't cons consider any of these type of dynamics at play, right? So they might look like sexy returns up front, and they might look like higher returns than some of the deals I operate in, although they are very robust returns regardless. Hmm. Um, but I'd rather stay stick to, you know, be on the safe side effectively. And lastly, I mean, like, you know, if you're starting to deal with a new operator, I mean, clearly, I mean, if you know these individuals, you've seen their track record for several years, um, perhaps you can um, jump in with two feet, but I like to spread my eggs. I don't keep all my eggs in one basket, right? Hmm. I like to, if, if I want to dip my toe with a new general partner as a passive investor, if I will choose to be a passive investor, I might basically invest maybe a minimum investment amount and basically see how that plays out. Mm. If that works out well, it gives me like experience dealing with these individuals, see exactly what kind of communication is coming from them, looking at their execution. Um, and when I say communication, it doesn't mean just all rosy stuff. Like, you know, every, everybody expects everything to go well. At the end of the day, you're dealing in real estate. Stuff comes up, mm. but you want to make sure that you're getting uh, excellent communication from your general partners. Um, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because they need to provide you with what the heck is happening with the property instead of trying to sugarcoat something about it. And I respect the uh, general partners like that. Um, then you can, of course, assess basically whether the issue uh, pertains to a general partner issue. Maybe they're not executing well, or whether there was something outside of their control, mm. right? And that gives you like, you, you get your feet wet with those general partners and you see how they operate. So the next deal that they basically uh, do some, you know, if you have feel fully confident with my management team, I might invest even more with them. Mm. Right. Mm. You know, so uh, there's different ways to go around doing it. It really depends on what your risk appetite is, but the due diligence uh, component is imperative. And as I mentioned, none of these deals are created equal. Um, and some, and depending on how these deals are underwritten by the general partners is of paramount importance when you're comparing, because you want to compare apples to apples. I agree. So the main thing here about you is you're jumping to the, uh, you know, as uh, the state's markets coming from Ontario and Canada's market. What was the motivation for you to jump to the, especially like unknown markets for you, like Arizona, uh, Phoenix or Atlanta? As a Canadian, what is the potential you see on this market versus, uh, for example, Ontario market? For sure. Uh, and that's an excellent question. Well, um, I find that the barriers of entry in the Ontario market, especially in the areas that I like to invest in, have gone very excessive. Mm. Um, trying to get cash flow out of our markets these days is becoming very tough. So, yeah, so uh, when you're dealing in the Ontario market, um, you know, the cost of capital just to buy the house, the cost of capital just to do like a two or three unit conversion, you're looking at around four or $500,000. And for a newbie investor or for a lot of investors, that's a lot of capital to deploy. Yeah. Right. Um, there was a time where everything was less expensive. Everything kind of made sense. Right. Now it's it's getting tougher, tougher to achieve that positive cash flow, which I'm targeting at all times because positive cash flow is your insurance policy to anything that happens in the market. And what I found is that, you know, I, I explored other markets such as Alberta, the East Coast of Canada, um, 
you could make the numbers work there, but when you're taking a look at the US, you could deal with municipalities there or general areas that are even significantly larger than Toronto and pick up properties there for significantly less than what you can pay, pick them up here. They're cash flow positive in a lot of respects from day one if you're dealing on the multifamily side. And that's before, even before you do any renovations. Right? In general, in general it's a fraction of price. Like if even we're, we're talking about main municipalities or like metropolitan like Atlanta, talking about 150 to 170 a unit we're in in and uh, in, in canada we're talking about or ontario we're talking about 400 to 500 a door so yeah for sure the price the entry price is really different even with main cities or states like uh, georgia uh, texas florida so i agree on this point and and, and uh, excellent all excellent points the other thing to, to take into consideration is Ontario is no longer landlord friendly. It never was, but now yeah. like with all the delays in the landlord tenant board, like in my, uh, I've actually had to execute an eviction actually last week. It yeah. wasn't pretty. It took me 15 months to get a tenant out, which is insane. Yeah. And you they only have money for 15 months. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they owe me over $15,000 and that's even before basically all the renovations that I'm going to have to do and the junk removal and all the other stuff. Yeah. So it's becoming a pretty risky market to be in albeit it is still amongst the best it has amongst the best dynamics in all of north america so i'm not discounting it fully and you could still achieve you know employ certain tactics and certain strategies within the ontario market but like i said the cost of capital and the risk several risk factors that you have to now take into consideration does not make it as appealing as it once was um, i think the main problem with the Ontario, besides of that is scalability if you're trying to scale your business Ontario is not the market for you because the game on, on, on this fringe market like San Francisco, New York, Washington, Toronto is uh, appreciation, not a cash flow market. Uh, and that's why the cap rate here, and it's it's really about 2.2, 2.2, whereas other market on the States, almost most of the market, you're talking about minimum four and a half on big market like Dallas or, or, uh, or Georgia, Atlanta. Whereas in as as I mentioned, Hamilton even is three percent and three and a half percent cap rate, which is really hard to uh, have any spread between your uh, cap rate and the interest rate. And this is one of the main point I think uh, to any investor want to understand the difference between the U.S. and Canada is that you have to look on the deals based on your spread between the interest rate you getting in and the cap rate. Which is, I think, it's a, the most important factor to have a cash flow, to have a really decent, risk-free deal. Absolutely, and and for that very reason, the numbers no longer make sense. I mean, like if you're looking, um, and and when you're looking at like a major city like Toronto, like if you're looking at the pre-construction pricing, for example, yeah. you know, even a 600 square foot condo is going to cost anywhere between 1,700 to 2,400 dollars a square foot. Yeah. Uh, the prevailing interest rates you're looking at, even if you put 20% down, you're looking at a carrying cost of six to $7,000 a month Yeah. on something like that. Um, and what are you going to get in rent? 3,500 now. So what investor in their right mind would, would want to basically invest in something like that where they're bleeding cash every month? It I doesn't think make that any the confusion sense. coming from 
uh, I think uh, new immigrants or uh, new investors to the market when it's it was really shining on the last five years uh, how much appreciation they got on this deal, especially on condo condominium, and they prefer or they think this is a better thing to do. I can double my money in just two to two, three years, but they don't understand that the market cycle is not always like this, and you cannot rely on this and in, in in downturn market it's easily you can lose your whole asset because you're not going to able to maintain this high uh, interest and the loss on the appreciation you were thinking that this is going to be my end game so i think this is coming this this is coming from new newbies on uh, on investing on in, in multifamily or even single family home in general Yep. And and you bring up a good point, like major cities like New York, like the high flying real estate markets like New York, Toronto now. Toronto has come to its own only in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, prior to that, I mean, you could find affordable options in the GTA, but that is no longer the case, whether you're a renter or a buyer. Um, and even San Francisco, what people don't seem to understand is, you know, what does it take to move a needle on a million dollar property versus a $150,000 or $200,000 property, Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it, it, people don't seem to recognize that people's budgets are usually pretty darn static, mm. right? Nobody can just, you know, if you're a renter or a home buyer, you can't just snap your fingers and saying, well, I, I now have to make $250,000. I'm only making $60,000, $80,000 today. You know, I have, you know, go to your boss and say, I need to make two fifty dollars in order to afford to live in the city. It's not going to happen. Your boss is not going to give him a raise, yeah. right? And that will have an impact with respect to appreciation in these specific markets. Now, appreciation to me, unfortunately, you know, people who bank on appreciation, I don't call them investors, I call them speculators, hmm, right? Right. And if you're looking at high-flying markets, that's essentially and most buyers who are buying in these markets. They're not doing it for cash flow any longer. They're looking at it exclusively for appreciation. And the problem is, you know, appreciation is like a bonus, right? Like you're working for someone, you get your day, your, uh, your your salary every couple of weeks. You come into work. You get a salary every couple of weeks. You know what? What is the analogy to that in the real estate market? Well, your principal pay down on your mortgage, hmm. right? And your cash flow is your salary, right? So what is this concept of appreciation? Appreciation is your year end bonus, right? So if I had to ask you, Adam, it's like, do you know what your bonus is going to be? this year, Adam, or, or do you even know whether you're going to get one? A speculation, then. It's, it's speculation, get, right? Yeah, yeah. But but a lot of the, the speculators think that, you know, that's the deal that they're making. It's, a, it's as if like I'm going up to them and saying, by the way, you know, you know this a compensation package you had before of hourly wage and year-end bonus? Okay, the hourly wage or, or your salary is poop gone. You're now going to be a, a, a compensated based on a, a, an appreciation only. Deal? And you don't know whether, and your question would be, is like, how much am I going to make? I'm like going, I don't know. You know, you could be the best employee in the company, but if the company does crap, you get nothing. I think that the market has been driven by false information by especially real estate and uh, real estate uh, relatives trying to get more money from, uh, like, having this mindset on, as you mentioned, on the speculators, not the investors in the market, which is drove the market crazy. And right now is the downturn or what we have right now in the recession is going to have some sort of more um, acceptable and rational uh, jumps on the market, at least on the next four or five years. 
uh, which this is basically what what we hear about is how you can uh, understand investing professionally uh, on multifamily real estate in general uh, because this is not a speculation game not only appreciation the main I think um, that the whole industry driven by the concept of the cash flow okay uh, thanks so much uh, for being with us today and my final question to you will be how the people can follow your success uh, for sure um, they can either email me or uh, reach out to me on Facebook hmm. or LinkedIn I post a lot of insights on the market uh, both in the US and in Canada um, or they can reach out to me by email at Felix at cloud c-l-o-u-d the number nine life l-i-f-e dot c-a um, yeah, I'll be more than happy to provide them with any insights uh, that they're looking for, both uh, whether they're interested in multifamily investing, uh, private equity investing with respect to development deals, why I do it, uh, why I think that that, uh, that these are great opportunities, especially moving forward, you know, all that good stuff, for sure. I appreciate it, Felix. Uh, have a good day. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. Thank you. Thank you.